Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 676 for the 17th of January, 2020. This week, several years after the first smart speakers were released, I have one. It wasn't my idea, but it was free, and it seems to be useful. In short circuits, you hear my spiel about the importance of backup occasionally. This time, I have a story that illustrates clearly why it is so important. Lies are endemic on the internet, and particularly in social media. Those who are interested in truth can find it, though. And in spare parts, only on the website, Windows 7 is no longer viable, but you might not have to pay for an update to Windows 10. A school district in suburban Austin has lost more than $2 million to scammers. And 20 years ago, the MP3 music format, which had been invented just three years earlier, was beginning to take off. Although I'm not always an early adopter, I do generally get around to things. Take smart speakers, for example. When Google offered a Nest Mini for free, I accepted the offer. It wasn't an offer just for me. I think that anybody who bought a Google smartphone in 2019 received the same offer. Google positioned it as a $50 gift. However, the Nest Mini is widely available for $35, and it's a gift that encourages recipients to buy other Nest products. We'll get to that in a bit. The smart speaker has all but eliminated my need for a radio. Although I could program the speaker to wake me with an alarm and then set the morning sequence to play NPR, I still use a clock radio for that, at least for now. You might think that smart speakers are a relatively recent invention. The first edition of Amazon's Echo Studio started shipping in November 2014. Google Home followed two years later, but we could see what was coming as early as the 1990s. In 1998, or maybe 1999, while I was attending PC Expo in New York City, a consortium of networking companies invited me to a demonstration house that had been set up to show the connected house concept. This is something I'd been thinking about and occasionally writing about since sometime in the late 1970s. Back then, it seemed to me that the only things keeping homes from being automated with what I thought would be a computer, a big one, in the basement were cost, size, hardware, and software. In other words, back then, there was a long way to go. A lot of progress had been made by the late 1990s when I visited that demonstration house in Manhattan. One of the devices in the house looked like a standard radio, but it didn't contain a tuner. Instead, it had a network connection, and the promise was that music and news would be delivered via the Internet. That's part of what a smart speaker is, of course, but these devices can do much, much more. Look up information, provide the time, temperature, or forecast, originate phone calls, make and remind you of appointments, control lights, and temperature, and even more than that. So my 1970s house controller is here, but it's not in the basement. Instead, it takes up about 13 square inches on the desk. 
It's round with a diameter of about four inches and maybe an inch and a half tall. Smart speakers are selling reasonably well despite some legitimate privacy concerns over hacking risks, worries about devices that are always listening, and thoughts about the potential for government eavesdropping. When compared to smartphones, though, many of which are also always listening and additionally track our movements, smart speakers have a much lower market penetration. Even people at or below the poverty line often have smartphones these days. Nearly 80% of those who earn less than $20,000 a year, and that figure rises to 95% or above for those who are earning more than $100,000 a year. Smart speakers, on the other hand, are owned by about 20% of the population, with the highest market penetration, about 29%, in the 30- to 44-year-old range. It's likely that adoption of smart speakers has been hindered by security concerns, even though those smartphones we like to carry around are considerably more intrusive. The Google Nest Mini has a physical switch that turns off the microphone. That, of course, essentially renders the device useless. It would be possible for a user to turn on the mic only when issuing a command, but I think few people would be willing to do that. The Google Nest Mini is one of a group of products from Google under the banner of Google Home. In November 2016, the first Google Home speaker went on sale. About a year later, Google released the smaller, round Google Home Mini, and the larger Google Home Max went on sale. The Google Home Hub, which is a smart speaker with a 7-inch touchscreen, followed in late 2018, the family was rebranded as Google Nest in mid-2019 when the Google Nest Hub Max went on sale. Smart speakers are supposed to respond only when the user utters a specific hot word. For Google devices, the hot word is actually two words, OK Google or Hey Google, and the Nest Mini seems to comply. Saying just Google doesn't wake the speaker, but Hi Google usually does. I tried using a lot of other short words in front of Google. None of those triggered the Nest Mini, though. That doesn't mean it's not listening, though, only that it's not taking any action on what you say. Google's instructions describe how to use the switch to turn off the microphone entirely and explains what the smart speaker hears is sent to Google only when the device detects that the user is instructing it to do something or when it's being used for audio calling. Google logs all of the activity associated with your account. They say only you can see it. So you can review what the speaker has heard and what it has acted on by visiting Google's My Activity website. There's a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. I like a lot of things about this little speaker. Having spent some time in New York City, I like to listen occasionally to WQXR, the classical station that at one time was owned by the New York Times. WQXR has a web presence, of course, and I could listen by going to the website and launching the streaming audio. That doesn't help if I want to listen at night after the computer has been shut down, though. And although I know I can listen to just about any radio station by finding its website presence, I rarely do. I found that it's really a lot easier to just say, Hey, Google, play WQXR. And the number of radio stations is remarkable, including stations from throughout the United States, as well as Canada, England, and Australia. 
Add a streaming service such as Pandora, Spotify, YouTube Music, or Amazon Music to expand the options. I selected Pandora's $5 a month option, which eliminates the annoying ads that always seem to be so much louder than the music content. Perhaps that's used as an enticement for listeners to sign up for one of the paid plans. There's a more expensive plan, $10 a month, that includes the ability to share playlists. Well, that's something I don't need. There's a slight discount if you choose to pay annually instead of monthly. Before the paid subscription kicked in, I dropped Pandora, switched to Spotify. It's more expensive, but the interface on both the computer and the phone is far better than what Pandora offers, and the audio quality seems better too. Both the desktop and the smartphone instances of Spotify can play audio or control what's playing on the Nest Mini speaker, one device at a time. And it seems I'm going to have to break my habit of opening a browser window for simple questions. Here are some examples. Hey Google, what's the temperature in Moscow? The current temperature in Moscow is 31. What's tomorrow's forecast? Tomorrow in Moscow, it'll be cloudy, with a high of 33 and a low of 28. No, I mean, what's the current forecast here? Today in Worthington, it'll be mostly cloudy, with a forecasted high of 60 and a low of 50. When was the first Model T Ford sold? October 1st, 1908. On the website history.com, they say, On October 1st, 1908, the first production Model T Ford is completed at the company's Piquette Avenue plant in Detroit. Between 1908 and 1927, Ford would build some 15 million Model T cars. Hey Google, how far is it from Toronto to Vancouver, British Columbia? Toronto is 4,388 kilometers away from Vancouver by car. How far is 4,388 kilometers in miles? 4,388 kilometers is equal to 2,726.577 miles. Hey Google, What's the temperature at which tin becomes molten? Sorry, I don't know how to help with that. But I'm learning more every day. What's the elevation of Columbus, Ohio? The elevation of Columbus is 902 feet. Hey Google, play WQXR New York. Sure, here's classical 105.9 WQXR on NPR. You've noticed that I use the British Assistant, but there are lots of choices. Here are the voices you can pick for your Google Assistant. Here are the voices you can pick for your Google Assistant. Here are the voices you can pick for your Google Assistant. Here are the voices you can pick for your Google Assistant. Here are the voices you can pick for your Google Assistant. Here are the voices you can pick for your Google Assistant. Here are the voices you can pick for your Google Assistant. Here are the voices you can pick for your Google Assistant. Here are the voices you can pick for your Google Assistant. Here are the voices you can pick for your Google Assistant. Hey, Issa Rae here. I lent my voice to your Google Assistant so you can hear me do things like answer your questions, brief you on the weather, and tell jokes, while the regular assistant voice does the rest. Let's do this thing. Hi, John Legend here. I lent my voice to your Google Assistant so you can hear me do things like answer your questions, brief you on the weather, and tell jokes while the regular assistant voice handles the rest. Let's have some fun. I can program the device so that at bedtime it asks when I want to set tomorrow's wake-up alarm and then tells me tomorrow's forecast and the first few items on my schedule. It can then shut up or play relaxing sounds. Or I can tell it to play a specific radio station or a Pandora selection for whatever period I specify.
For morning activities, I can program it to tell me the forecast, current weather conditions, list the first few items on my schedule, and then either shut down or play music. Now, by programming here, I mean select a few items from a checklist and specify a few options. No real programming knowledge is needed. There are lots of options I haven't looked at, such as connecting it to a thermostat or being able to turn lights on and off. There are security functions, too, such as doorbells with cameras and the ability to control some televisions, options to broadcast messages to speakers throughout the house if you have several of them, and additional devices to expand Wi-Fi coverage throughout the house. There are some things I don't like, too. So far, I've found only two annoyances, and I am disregarding the privacy issue. First, when the device is streaming audio, it sometimes just stops. When I check the home app on a phone or tablet, it tells me that the music is still playing. The solution is pretty easy. There's a button called Stop Streaming, so I click that. Then I click Play Music. Even though it's easy, it's still annoying. And it's not something that should happen to a system that's been in widespread distribution for three years. Second, the Home Mini sometimes loses its connection with the Wi-Fi router, despite the Mini's close proximity to the router less than four feet with nothing but air between them. The problem seems to be less prevalent when using the 2.4 gigahertz signal instead of the 5 gigahertz signal. When the connection breaks, this one gets a little more complicated. The user has to unplug the power connection and then plug it back in to reboot the device. When I switched from the 5 gig signal to the 2.4 gigahertz signal, the number of instances dropped from several times a day to once every day or two. That's better but it's still too often, and it's something that users have been complaining about from the beginning. An hour-long online session with Google technical support ended with an inexplicable recommendation to switch from the main network to the guest network. The technician assured me that this would resolve the problem. It didn't. An email the next day told me the support session had been closed, but I could reopen it by replying to the message. I did that. Twice. But the lack of response from Google tells me that I'll simply have to start the process all over again. The next support session will have to address a new problem, too. I say, hey, Google, play KKJZ for 30 minutes. The assistant responds this way. Okay, here's KJazz 88.1 on iHeartRadio. Bedroom speaker will stop playing in 30 minutes. Well, an hour later, KKJZ is still playing. Two hours later, KKJZ is still playing. At 3 a.m., I wake up and say, Hey, Google, shut up. And silence ensues. So the bottom line here is three cats. Despite the annoying flaws, the Nest Mini is a handy device. Despite the potential security concerns, the Nest system is less intrusive than smartphones. The reason I've given the device three cats, which is still a good solid rating instead of five, is the result of those annoyances that cause the speaker to stop playing and the device to occasionally disconnect from the Wi-Fi router. It's easy enough to experiment with one of these devices if you'd like to. You'll have to spend $35, unless you've recently purchased a Pixel phone and Google offers you a free Nest Mini. Perhaps the most expensive downside is you may decide to buy a bunch of other Nest products for locations throughout the house. You can find additional details on the Google Nest website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, 
might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. short circuits, backup is a topic I drag out frequently, maybe too frequently. But in the first week of the new year, I received a powerful reminder of why backup is important and not just for those times when a disk drive crashes. If you've been reading the blog or listening to the podcast for more than a few years, you may recall a time in mid-May 2017 when my older daughter suffered a sudden unexpected acute liver failure. Her husband found her unconscious on the floor of their home, the diagnosis was made at Fairfield Medical Center, and she was transported to University Hospital in Columbus the next day, where she lapsed into a coma. Because the liver failure was acute and immediately life-threatening, she was moved to the top of the transplant list. A donor liver became available a few days later. In the interim, University Hospital gave the families an abbreviated course in organ transplantation so that we would know what was happening and what we should expect. I took a few photographs during the process, recorded some of the discussions with doctors and other medical professionals, and collected a large stack of paper. The transplant was successful, and I stored the audio recordings, photos, and PDF copies of the documents on a cloud-based location where the family would have access to the files. On the 4th of January, Elizabeth told me she was having trouble finding the documents. When I checked, the reason was obvious. The directory no longer existed. My local backups replicate deletions, so I knew the files would no longer be there either. CrashPlan from Code42 retains old versions of files, so I could go back to January 2019 and recover the folder and the 86 files in that folder in just a few minutes. So, what happened to the files? Well, as tempting as it is to blame it on the computer, I know that's not the case. Computers don't magically delete files. Files don't evaporate or fall off disk drives. It was clearly an instance of operator error. I had somehow accidentally deleted the directory. Most, if not all, of the files would have been present on other local disk drives, so it wasn't a catastrophe, no matter what. But the cloud-based location had everything in one central location and allowed me to correct the problem in just a few minutes. If you think your disk drive will last forever, you're wrong. If you think you won't ever accidentally delete files that you want to keep, you're probably wrong. Safe is always better than sorry. And that is why backup is so important. A lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. That saying is often attributed to Mark Twain by people who want to debunk lies. The only problem with that is that Mark Twain appears not to have said it. Truth and facts are valuable commodities, and they should be protected. 
The quote investigator examined the supposed Twain quote and could not find it in any of Twain's books. A version of this adage was attributed to Mark Twain in 1919, the quote investigator said, but Twain died in 1910. Niraj Chosky wrote about this in the New York Times in April of 2017. You'll find links to the quote investigator and the New York Times on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week, www.techbiter.com. Urban myths are a plague on society, and the situation is made worse by Facebook, Twitter, and all of the other social media. Anyone can post anything, and lies are rampant. For example, you may see a claim on Facebook that Abraham Lincoln said, As a result of the war, corporations have been enthroned, and an era of corruption in high places will follow, and the money power of the country will endeavor to prolong its reign by working on the prejudices of other people until all wealth is aggregated in a few hands and the republic is destroyed. Well, according to Snopes.com, that claim is false. Lincoln never said it, no matter how much we lefties might wish to think he had been so prescient. Snopes has been around since 1994. It is the oldest and largest online fact-checker. Extremists on the left claim that Snopes is a right-wing tool. Extremists on the right say it's a left-wing tool. Well, they must be doing something right. For more than a quarter of a century, the organization has been investigating claims and exposing false information, whether accidental, which would be misinformation, or intentional, which would be disinformation. Facts are invaluable, and they're not cheap. Snopes is an organization of just 10 people, and paid advertisements on the website have helped to finance the operation. The ads are insufficient, though, and Snopes recently announced a membership plan similar to one used by Wikipedia.org, another essential resource. That's not to say that either Wikipedia or Snopes is perfect. Neither is. But both are essential resources for those who value facts and truth. When we base our decisions on lies, we no longer control our own destiny. So if you can spare a few dollars a month, either of those organizations, or both of them, will use your money to defend facts and truth. There is truth in spare parts, which you'll find on the website, and only on the website. This week, Windows 7 is no longer viable, but you might not have to pay for an update to Windows 10. A school district in suburban Austin has lost more than $2 million to scammers. And 20 years ago, the MP3 music format, which had been invented three years earlier, was beginning to take off. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.